millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Today I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, and later Franklin Roosevelt and the USSR. Um, This is really interesting, and it shows that um, there is a kind of an evolving and quite complex and oftentimes quite confused relationship between these figures and what they perceive Uh, to be happening within uh, Russia after the October Revolution. And a lot of what follows, a lot of the um, diplomacy and the, um, in some ways, quite cordial diplomacy from the White House towards the Soviet Union um, during the Paris Peace Conference and after and then during the um, the Great Depression, when Roosevelt is in office, is based on these assumptions, is based on um, beliefs that are fostered from within um, the uh, administrations of these two Democrat presidents um, about what they think is happening in the USSR. So the first place to start, really, is with um, Woodrow Wilson, Um, Woodrow Wilson was quite keen for the USSR to attend the Paris Peace Conference. But during um, 1919, the uh, entirety of Russia uh, is in chaos. It was very, very difficult to um, ascertain um, any kind of realistic picture of what's going on in Russia. Communications are um, very difficult. There is... um, Transport links are, have been have broken down. It's impossible to for many people to get in and out of Russia, um, and such basic amenities as telegrams and uh, a postal service in most of the country, because of the civil war, uh, have, have collapsed. Um, actually, communicating with the new revolutionary government is very difficult. The attitude that Wilson has towards the new revolutionary government is is quite um, um, ambiguous. He looked upon um, Tsarism as uh, really a, a, an abomination 
Um, when Woodrow Wilson um, commits America to the war in April 1917, it comes two months after there has been what appears at face value to be a, something of a, a liberal democratic moment in Russia. Tsarism has fallen and the, a provisional government um, has been uh, put in situ, which is going to be a caretaker government until there can be um, elections for constituent assembly. So this all seems quite positive. And it helps people like Wilson and Lloyd George to rebrand the entire war effort um, as now a struggle of democracies against despotisms. Um, not that really the um, uh, the Kaiser's Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire were despotisms anything like, or anything on the scale of Tsarist Russia. But um, there, it, there, this convenient story, now that um, the Tsar has gone, can be told. And both Woodrow Wilson and Lloyd George have little sympathy for the Tsar and little sympathy for the ruling classes of Russia um, and, and believe really that they, they kind of got what they deserved. The anti-communist-in-chief um, after October 1917 is, of course, Winston Churchill, who is perhaps one of the, one of the few figures seems to really understand um, what the what he, what the West faces um, with the, the 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 Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks are this small and um, very obscurist um, uh, radical sect, if you will, that is is very poorly understood in both the Western world and also in Russia itself. You know, not many people have heard of Lenin. Lenin. Um, when he uh, he bumps into members of the public in the streets of um, Moscow after he's been uh, he's seized power, there are people that have no idea who he is. Um, this is the kind of the, the shaky foundations that that government is on from 1918 um, up until really the end of the civil war. Um, the excesses, the murderous excesses of the, the Bolsheviks and the, the horrors of the Civil War um, are transmitted to the West by um, the various writers um, and journalists who stay on um, and, and during the, um, the Civil War, people such as John Reed and Arthur Ransom and, uh, and other figures. A lot of it isn't believed. Much of what they were writing saying now is demonstrably true, that um, this was a, a horrifically um, bloody conflict where atrocities happened on all sides. And uh, the, the Bolsheviks were very often given the benefit of the doubt by people like Wilson and people like Lloyd George, who preferred to think that, uh, and whilst n neither of these men were communists in any way, shape or form, and we must never go down that route, they had ra they rather hoped that what they saw emerging was um, a a period of of terror that would be followed by some kind of moderation, some kind of readjustment, some kind of end to the the, the radicalism, um, and some kind of um, development or of a hopefully at some point in the future a liberal republic. Now this sounds hopelessly naive. And it sounds that um, these people were uh, have been taken for a, a ride by by the Bolsheviks. They they were um, kind of the you know, useful idiots, as as Lenin 
would later describe the fellow traveller movement. And you can, by the way, you can check out the podcast I did on the fellow travellers. It's I think about number forty or fifty or something like that. But it's well worth a listen, if I dare say so myself. But we shouldn't be too hard on Wilson, and we shouldn't be too hard on Lloyd George either, because what we're essentially saying to them is that they were fools for not predicting Stalinism. Well, none of us can do that. People like Winston Churchill are seen to be incredibly prescient when it comes to predicting the rise of Hitler or uh, observing that uh, Nazi, uh, that um, the uh, Soviet Union would be this uh, immensely murderous regime. But he is somebody who said a lot about a lot, much of which was wrong, and he's also part of a, a class of conservatives with a small c, who thought Mussolini was rather great for much of his time in office. So the Wilson um, administration um, had hoped that there would be some kind of representation of the Russians at the Paris Peace Conference. People like Clemenceau um, were, believed that the Russians should receive no recognition for they had signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. The Russians had, um, in, uh, under the Bolshevik government, had um, allowed the Germans to put hundreds of thousands of men um, into the West um, in order to launch the Ludendorff Spring Offensive. In fact, actually, it looks like now that um, that's not quite what happened. The, the men who fought in the Ludendorff Offensive were, che- were cherry-picked, really, from existing divisions in the West. There are fewer people moved from East to West than, than perhaps we think. But that's by the by. What um, Clemenceau conveniently ignored was the fact that had it not been for the Russian uh, offensives of 1914, the Germans would have been in Paris within um, six weeks um, of, of the uh, the launching of the uh, Schlieffen Plan. So the Russians did have um, you know, a very important part to play in uh, the final victory, even if they had uh, exited the war by that point. Lenin was um, not particularly interested in attending the Paris Peace Conference, and he was happy to publish the uh, secret war plans uh, hatched by Lord George and Clemenceau um, over uh, the Middle East. Um, the Tsar had been cc'd in on all of this um, and had been promised Constantinople and the Dardanelles. Um, and there was a, um, uh, a sense uh, that Lenin, I mean, Lenin was causing as much mischief as he could in order really to portray the Western powers uh, as the imperialists he perceived them to be. Um, by 1917, there's been this profound shift away from popular imperialism, popular imperialism in Britain, France, America, and other uh, other um, uh, on to- uh, combatant powers, is seen as really um, part of the uh, the the kind of the uh, the black magic that has caused the war. Um, so uh, Lenin really does his his best to uh, cause a great deal of trouble um, for for the Allies. Two members of um, Wilson's inner circle, William Bullitt, um, the diplomat, and uh, Lincoln Steffens, the journalist who knew, uh, US journalist who knew Russia very well, 
went to uh, Moscow uh, in order to see if the if U.S. Um, Bolshevik uh, re relations could be established. Lincoln Steffens was, of course, famously one of the fellow traveller movement who um, was a great enthusiast for communism, never quite a member of the party himself, but um, was um, famous for saying, you know, I have seen the future and it works. He was um, able to, uh, to kind of ignore the uglier side of communism, the violence and bloodshed that he saw in Russia, by saying that the, here, herein is a country going through a revolutionary transition. And here's where um, uh, Wilson gained a lot of his insights into uh, the, the condition of, of, of uh, the new Soviet regime. He was given very sympathetic accounts by people like Stephens. And later on, um, interestingly, Roosevelt um, was uh, similarly beguiled by um, Stalinism through the American fellow travellers who um, would return and visit the White House and tell him about the achievements of Stalinism and the hope that um, Stalinism was going through a radical, violent phase and would settle into something far more progressive eventually later on. One of the um, characters that Roosevelt deferred to was Anna Louise Strong, who had worked as a journalist in the Soviet Union and was enamoured with the place. She, she came from a, a devoutly Christian background and she um, viewed uh, the emergent society in the Soviet Union, even though it was secular, even though it persecuted the Orthodox Church, as some kind of development of, of God's work in the world. And um, she was so passionate about communism that she actually uh, returned to America uh, at the height of the five-year plans in order to interest American businessmen in, order, in investing in Russia. The Stalinist regime was quite interested in um, developing um, large American auto plants, uh, particularly on the Volga River, um, and in return they were able to export gold. This gold is obviously all dug in places like Kalima by um, Gulag slave labour. Um, and Roosevelt quizzically asked um, Anna Louise Strunk you know, where Stalin, all Stalin's gold came from. Um, and I'm not sure she gave him a particularly thorough answer to that one. It was one of the great ironies that in 1949 she's actually arrested by the Soviets as a spy. The uh, from the mid 1930s onwards, this kind of rather cosy toleration of Westerners coming to view the great experiment in the Soviet Union um, dissolves into a kind of in, into a Stalinist xenophobia and suspicion. And there are a, a great a great number of um, American fellow travellers and um, economic migrants to the USSR who vanish into the Soviet camp system. Uh, she manages to extricate herself from that, but um, during the uh, McCarthyist period of the late 1940s, early 1950s, um, is, is viewed with immense suspicion back in the USA as well. Roosevelt um, and his view of um, Stalinism, 
shows a, an interesting kind of continuity with um, the the Wilsonian the Wilsonian period, and obviously Roosevelt is the naval secretary and then vice presidential running mate under um, Wilson. Um, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Roosevelt simply absorbed Wilson's ideas, but there is a certain kind of compatibility in that they they looked upon um, the emergence of the Soviet Union. Um, as being something far more benign and or far more optim optimistic than that which actually emerges. And the reason for this, I guess, is that both men had this um, universalist, um, this American sort of universalism, where they were kind of hoping, Wilson at the end of the um, First World War is hoping that a... Uh, an American uh, model of the future might emerge. You might have um, independent, free nation-states liberated from imperialism, um, cooperating with one another, with um, constitutions, um, popular sovereignty, and uh, free presses, civil rights, and free trade, free access to the seas. And from thence you create this um, 20th century, um, which is slightly utopian 20th century. Um, after the Second World War, and, and obviously, let us not forget, involving the League of Nations as the uh, supranational body moderating all of this. The um, Roosevelt view of the world, whilst never quite articulated in something like the 14 points, Roosevelt never writes down the Roosevelt Doctrine. Instead, he has, um, I hope, um, after the Second World War, uh, yes, there will be a United Nations, but there will also be, um, it's, it's, it's slightly less utopian, that there will be um, a, a series of spheres of influence between the great powers, which would, in Roosevelt's hope, be Russia, America, China, and the, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, Roosevelt said he didn't want France involved, and all of that, he was not a Francophile in any way, shape or form. Roosevelt, both Wilson and Roosevelt, hoped that the Soviet Union would emerge as a uh, credible player and almost partner within this, within their respective new world systems that were going to emerge after these titanic conflicts. And unfortunately, in both instances, the in the nineteen twenties and thirties the uh, Soviet Union plays little part in, um, you know, regulating world affairs. And after 1945, it emerges as an antagonist to the United States. Um, both presidents, I think, are perhaps guilty of um, projecting rather naive uh, notions onto the USSR. Um, but let us not get into a kind of a, a sense of inevitability about what the USSR may or may not have become anyway. It's possible that the USSR may have had a moment where it could have emerged and evolved um, as a um, uh, a more um, liberal or, to use, a more moderate uh, regime. Um, quite possibly the events of the Civil War and the perception of the Soviet Union being surrounded perpetually by enemies uh, as a result of its, its revolutionary birth uh, made the uh, chances of a moderate and um, 
less paranoic regime. Very, very slim indeed. Anyway, um, I hope this has been useful, and if you are studying this at the moment and you want something uh, a bit extra, you might find it useful to look at Chris Kostov's The Communist Century, which you can find on my website, www.explaininghistory.com, and I'll post a link to it at the end of this podcast. Anyway, thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.